Good morning. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we continue to have to gather for corporate worship. I just pray for Stacy as he shares this morning and for us as we receive. In Jesus' name, amen. It is true that uh, some people can have a hard time accepting the resurrection. The objection to it goes something like this, you know, it's what you might anticipate. It's just not the kind of thing that happens, right? It's, it's like impossible. So you couldn't believe in the resurrection because we just never see it. And it's no trouble to me to tell you what I always say in, that, uh, in the face of that objection, and it's this. Yeah, that's God's point. This is the impossible, and he intervened. That's the, that's the whole reason it happens, but we're getting ahead of ourselves because in this passage, what we, do, we come across the tomb where the body of Jesus is laid, and then in the narrative, it's, hey, now it's empty. What's up with that? So we have to keep in mind that as we read John's gospel and we're making our way through it, he wrote it for sure for worship. For us now, but we know many of us, most of us know about Jesus. We know about his life, his coming, right, and his death on the cross and his resurrection. So it informs our worship. But at the outset, he wrote it for witness. So the people who didn't know the story and they wanted to make sense of it all could know about Jesus. And, you know, he wrote it so. That the, so the believer would read it, become convinced, and believe. So if you go through it the first time, there's this tension. You know, imagine you didn't know what happened with Jesus at all. And you read it, and Jesus is talking about life, and then he makes these predictions. It looked like death and resurrection. And then you read of his execution, and it seems over, but now the tomb is empty. Wait. It's this. It's as though Jesus knew what was going to happen all along or something. So here we find ourselves at the empty tomb. And the first character uh, that we see there is Mary Magdalene. Now, what do we know about Mary? 
Um, it, she, Magdalene is not her last name. It's where she's from, Magdala. It's a village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is why would they uh, designate her that way? Well, there are a lot of Marys in first century Judaism, maybe a lot of Roman Catholics uh, born back then. I don't know, but a uh, little joke about, right. Anyway, if you have to say it, it's not funny. Uh, anyway. So, but there were a lot of Marys, and you were going to have to distinguish one Mary from another Mary from another. And this is Mary, oh, which one? She's the one from Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And we know a little bit about her from Luke chapter 8. She became a follower of Jesus, and one of the reasons that she did is because Jesus had healed her. And after that, she, along with a lot of other women, uh, became supporters. So sometimes they followed him around, they traveled with him and the greater group. Um, they supported him financially, but this is that Mary. Devoted follower, somebody whose life has been changed by Jesus. And she's at the, at the tomb. And in verse 1, let's look at that again together. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the tomb had been taken away, or that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So two things here in this little verse is... John lays out the setting. Right? It's the first day of the week. This is kind of an interesting thing from a literary perspective, the way almost all the gospel writers write it. When Jesus talks about, listen, I'm going to die, but then three days I'm going to rise. He almost always uses this three days after you know, formula, if you want to call it that. So that when Jesus expresses it, it's I'm going to die, and then three days later something's going to happen. And here, John doesn't say three days after. He says the first day of the week. It's almost like it's indicating something new, something fresh. John also says it's early. As a matter of fact, it's so early it's still dark. The sun hadn't come up. And she's at the tomb. She's at the place where they put Jesus' body. Now, let's just ask this question. Is it possible, because some people ask this question, is it possible that Mary just went to the wrong tomb? And that's a good question. It's, a good, it's like a fair question, but it's not a good objection. All right, so you might ask, how do we know that she actually, it's dark. How do we know she actually went to the right place? And the reason it's a fair question is you go, well, you want to make sure you get it right. If this is where, because if God did the impossible and he raised Jesus from the dead, you want to make sure you're at the right place, that he actually did that. But everyone knew. This is why it's a bad objection. Everyone knew where the tomb was. And so, it would have been corrected easily if there had been a mistake made. So, let's just say that Mary Magdalene went to the wrong tomb, came back, hey, the tomb is empty. Well, what about the two disciples who go to the tomb? What about the rest of the disciples who know where Jesus is buried? We know from the other uh, gospel accounts that there are Roman guards and the religious leaders know so this could have been corrected at any time had there been a mistake. Um, religious leaders who had every incentive to produce the body if they could, could have done so just to correct that. So it's a fair question, but it's a bad objection. But what John points out is what Mary saw, maybe what she didn't see. She noticed the stone. It had been put at the entrance uh, to seal the tomb. It was common back then, and uh, she notes that it was taken away. 
That suggests something. It's, it's, it, she goes there. It's not the same. And so someone or something had happened to it, so it intervened. So perhaps she knows more, but at least she knows this, that where the stone was that sealed the tomb, it's gone. She probably knows uh, a little bit more than that. She knows the body is gone, but we can deduce that from what she reports to the disciple. So in the first verse, she observes it. The second, she reports it. Let's read that together. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, or said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She ran. She's in a hurry. There's a sense of urgency about her. And she goes to Peter and John. Those are probably the two best guys to make this report to. So she sees the empty tomb. There's no body in there. And she goes to tell probably the two main guys in Peter and John. Why did I say John? Tradition says that uh, it's probably our best bet. I'm going to refer to the one whom Jesus loved or the disciple whom Jesus loved as John. Um, seems like a fair bet. It's possible there's, it's somebody else. But it looks like it's Peter and John. My tradition. She's in their circle, and uh, here's her take. The tomb is empty. That's a fact. But then she says this. Notice this. Someone has taken his body, like they have taken his body. We don't know where they have laid him. She's not anticipating a miracle here. She doesn't go back to them and say, hey, guess what, guys? You know those things that Jesus said that we didn't get about maybe rising from the dead? I guess it happened. That is not what she said. She, she assumes that whatever happened was done by somebody else. She doesn't expect anything like a miracle. So she reports this to these two disciples, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John. What do they do? They go to the tomb, verses 3 and 4. Look at that with me. It says, So uh, Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. They're heading to the tomb. We know it's the same tomb because whenever you pop down to verse 11, uh, Mary's back there at the same tomb. All right, So there's no disputing on that. But they're, they're running together, and John gets there faster. Now, listen, is this John just going like, dudes, I'm faster than Peter? Because right? it sounds like a schoolboy making a report. Like anytime you win a foot race, somebody needs to know, like anybody around you, right? So it seems kind of like that. Uh, and I'm not saying that John would be above that. You know, we don't know. He doesn't tip his hand that way. Just out of all the guys I know, boys to men. If you're faster than somebody and it's kind of an issue, you probably say so. Like I'm faster than that guy. But that's probably from just reading through the Gospel of John. That's probably not what he's doing here. The reason he lays it out that John got there first and then Peter is the way they come to the tomb. Uh, why bring it up? They, they, they arrive at the tomb differently and investigate it differently. And so that's the second part of it. They, they go to the tomb and then they investigate it. But John gets there first, verse 5. He says, in stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. This seems very John, kind of thoughtful. I want to approach with a kind of reverence. This is sort of more normal, right? If you were to go to a tomb and approach it, you may not just go stomping in. And so he gets there first, but he stops at the entrance, pokes his head in, and we're told what he sees. And again, what he doesn't see, the linen burial cloths there that they would have used to... Um, over the body of Jesus. But nothing else, like 
I don't know, a body that goes with those. And so that's what he observes. And then in verses 6 and 7, it says, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now he goes all the way in. This is Peter. No surprise there. He's going to go full force. And when he does, he notices what John noticed, those linen cloths. But he also noticed something else. That, that part that went over Jesus' head uh, was not with the rest, but was folded up or rolled up and put in a place by itself. It doesn't happen by cosmic accident, right? So what is John tipping his hand at? What is he pointing you to? Well, something happened here by design. This is an intentional act. This is somebody thought uh, to do this. So the body, if the body is missing, you know, if you stole the body, if somebody stole the body, they would not have done this. And if it was beamed up, think Star Trek, this wouldn't have happened this way, right? And so that's the point. Something thoughtful went on here, something intentional. And then John, verse 8, goes in as well. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, there he says it again. I'm just saying he's probably suggesting that he's a little more spry. Also went in and he saw and believed. He confirmed what Peter saw. Now you've got two witnesses in that area, and he confirmed what Peter had seen on his further investigation. He also notes, you see that little word, he believed. He believed. doesn't mean that he understands everything. Sometimes modern scholars, you know, they'll, they'll kick around everything on, on this stuff. And they'll, they'll object, well, listen, if John really believed, why didn't he say so to the other disciples? Why, why didn't he try to evangelize them? Well, one, we don't know that he didn't. We didn't you know, John doesn't describe that one way or the other. You don't say everything about everything every time. There's no book that's written that way. And the ones that try, you don't read, right? Because they're way too long. And so he's, he's letting us know what's essential going through there. But we don't know that John, you know, whether he was quiet about his opinion or whether he weighed in or not. But we do know this. He didn't understand everything that was going on, right? And he wasn't going to. It's not like he put together the, the pieces of, of it all. He, he just believed that there was some kind of a miracle there. There was some kind of a resurrection there. And then John, as he starts to conclude this part in verse 9, he makes this little note about Scripture. John believed, uh, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. What does he say? The Old Testament spoke to this. As a matter of fact, Jesus had spoken to this. The followers of Jesus didn't expect it, so the resurrection is not some kind of a spin, but Jesus spoke to it. The Old Testament spoke to it. God expects this even if the disciples don't. And then there's this kind of epilogue in verse 10. The two guys return home. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Home is just a general reference to where they were staying. And so they go back there, and you can tell from the narrative it's not over, but you can also tell that what happens next is not because the disciples generate it. Do you see that? They look at it, they observe it, and then they're done. They're just in the observing category. There's also this thing here. If you just pop down to verse 11, the next word there is but, but Mary, right? And so they, they call this in you know, grammar like a mild adversative. This little conjunction. This is what they did. Peter and John go back home. 
but Mary stayed at the tomb. Um, what do we do with this? I want to suggest that we should consider the nature of the, the evidence for the Christian faith. I'll just make two kind of basic categories for us to think and how they, how they weave in together. But particularly, when we're talking about the evidence for the Christian faith, we're talking particularly for the resurrection and here, the, the empty tomb. The resurrection is not some kind of spiritual claim. It's not merely a spiritual claim. The claim there is that an actual physical event occurred. This is historical. You live in a real world, and these people witnessed a real-world event. It's the, the bodily resurrection. Why is this important? Well, listen, a, a couple of things. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus, on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you just want to think about it, like where, trouble, you know, where do the modern uh, folks sometimes struggle with Scripture? If you accept these two things, that God created everything ex nihilo out of, out of nothing, that God created the universe and he did it by the power of his word, and that Jesus came and, and was raised bodily by the power of God the Father, then whenever you're talking about something else in between, what's the problem? Right? If, if God did all of this out of nothing and, and Jesus rose from the, the grave, whatever else you're talking about, whether you're trying to figure out what's the nature of the literature in the book of Jonah, who cares at that point, right? I mean, it's there for truth, but we've got what we need to know God intervenes. But also, here's the other side of it. So that's just the apologetics, but here's the personal. You really die. You really die as a consequence of sin. And if death has not been defeated, your death has not been defeated. And you, Allah, 1 Corinthians 15, remain doomed if Jesus hasn't overcome the dead. So, it's a real claim. Now, here's the a, here's a thing. It's obviously a, you know, a, a claim in contention. So I'm going to ask you a question. Who would you line up to be your witnesses to the resurrection? You know, in, the, in a former life, uh, I was a trial attorney, went to trial quite a bit. And a lot of times you could tell you, you have your case on paper and then you have your witness list. And you could tell, like on paper, your case might be pretty strong, but if you looked at your witness list... And uh, let's just say that they weren't going to communicate very well. You knew you were going to be in trouble. More than once, and I'm not the only one who did this, you would get to trial and know I've got good evidence, but I don't. this is the only person who can articulate this critical piece of the evidence, and I can't put him or her on the stand. I better start trying to negotiate this and get a plea deal, right? Just because my witness list was not strong. There are times that you would have somebody you'd, and um, you'd, you'd think, well, like, do you just mean somebody who'd, who don't talk too good or something like that? No. Sometimes you just have people who can't manage their emotions. Put them on the stand. They start screaming at everybody, including the judge. This is just not good for your case. I mean, you can imagine, right? But if you were thinking about the resurrection, and in particular, because this is where we are, the empty tomb, what kind of witness list would you want to draft? So there are two categories here, and we're going to talk about them. But you have human witness, human witness. And the first witness is Mary, a woman. Who would you call first? Who would bat lead off for you? Would it be a woman, 
oh, how can you raise such a question in this day and age? We're not. We're doing it in the first century. Nobody, and I mean nobody, would have done this back then. Uh, it turned out to be, her, she turned out to be a good witness, and her testimony is aged well. But it is interesting to me to know what we know about Christianity in the first century and then look at the modern claims and their attacks. Like, for example, and this isn't the only category, but for example, what some people say is that Christianity is oppressive to women. It's really held them down. Now, it makes you wonder about how you arrived in this world and culture you did, influenced so thoroughly as it has been by, uh, by, by the Christian faith. I wonder where that came from. But anyway, you know, would you call somebody like her? Rodney Stark, a historian, has done uh, good work on this, but ask yourself this question. We can look back some hundreds and even thousands of years later, and, and we can judge by our standards what we think of their culture and society. But here's something worth thinking about. Why did women flood into the Christian faith in the first century? Because they did. Why did women and slaves and, you know, quote-unquote lessers, societal lessers from all across the spectrum just flood into the Christian faith? Because they did. Were they stupid? Because moderns would seem to suggest so. Or maybe they were actually liberated, and so they, they, they were liberated by the Christian message, and so they responded to that. And that fruit continues today. It's something that we enjoy. Maybe they were smart because they could see what they came into. But they were coming into the faith. You can look at 1 Peter 3, for example. 1 Corinthians 7, by example, for example. That they were coming into the faith defying their non-believing husbands. Something absolutely countercultural. Why were they flooding into the Christian faith? Well, because they saw it. But she would not have been considered a credible witness back then. Not for ancient legal purposes. It's like God didn't care at all what people thought. It's like when God goes, but the optics, he never does that. You would not pick Mary if you were making this up. If this were just some kind of a fiction you were writing. Uh, you would want a more impressive imp first impression. But God chose what the world deemed foolish to shame it in its own supposed wisdom. It's aged pretty well, don't you think? Mary Magdalene leading off the batting order. And then there are these two male witnesses. There's Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John. And this, you know, if you think about it, this meets that standard set in the Old Testament law. You, you get all the details with this. They go in and inspect. There's one body buried there, and that body is missing. The grave clothes remains, not, where you would, not what you would do if that body were stolen. And that head covering is set aside in its own place, neatly folded up and whatnot. And these, these guys, now let me, let me suggest this to you. If you go, okay, well, this is just about the empty tomb. How much can we bank on it that this is what these guys believe? Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved were ultimately willing to die for what they testified to. And not just Peter and John, there were other witnesses. Here's a question. If you were making stuff up, would you? Would you die for that? There's just a big ruse. Or let's just say you and your buddy came up with this. You know what? Let's do the Jesus empty tomb rose from the dead thing. What a great laugh. Would you die for that? And could you get a buddy to die with you? 
how about this? They're, these two aren't the only who make this observation. Could you convince dozens of others, maybe even hundreds of others, to die for a ruse? Would you die for something you just know you made up? So you have this human witness on the ground, actual phys physical, historical event, and they're, just, they're giving you everything that you would need to know. What about this? What about, could there have been more than one body there? Nope. This is a tomb that had never been used, just one body. It had been sealed. It had been guarded. This is observed inside and out by one witness? No, by two. All right. And then you have the divine witness. So you have human witness and you have the divine witness. God predicts and then reinterprets the, reinterprets the resurrection event. Um, you know, I said he predicts it. When, when our son Nolan was about sixth, seventh grade, all the guys in his class would, uh, they would do this thing like, called it, all right? And so we still joke about this now. But something would happen, either be watching a game and like, that guy's going to hit a three, or he's going to score a touchdown, or they would flip bottles, wherever that thing came from, but they would flip bottles so it would land on the, you know, on, the, on its uh, bottom, on its base or whatnot. Or they'd be out, you know, I coached a lot of them in basketball. They would shoot a three, but they're like, I'm going to nail this. And you know, they, they would shoot it, and if they hit it, they would all go like, ah! I mean, they would just roar, running around, holding their hands up, going nuts and all of that. I called it, I called it, I called it. Now, never mind, they missed the six before that. <laughs> and so, I mean, Nolan and I will still do this now. We laugh about it, right? You know, like, you, you guess three times, and on the third time, you get it right. Yeah, you called it. Yeah, right, you called it. God doesn't miss six times first. Like he called it, and then, boom, it happened. You could look at different uh, scriptures in the Old Testament, Psalm 16:10, Isaiah 53, Daniel 12, Hebrews 6, uh, the sign of Jonah, Jonah 1:17. But in verse nine, what John says, he, he just inserts this here, little comment. They didn't understand this yet. They didn't understand what? The scripture. That he must rise from the dead. He must. This is essential to the plan. It's stated by the Old Testament in advance, hundreds of years before. This isn't an answer to, uh, to this unforeseen setback. It's not like Jesus gets crucified and then God goes, okay, how do we respond to this? Let's get the team together and figure out how to do a little damage control and what's our next move. It was the answer all along. And the reason, get this, is because Jesus came to be your representative. If you fell in Adam, you needed a representative who would win for you. And if he was going to win for you, if he were to do that, he had to be one of us. Right? You know, an, an animal can't represent you. Something that's not you can't re represent you. So in the incarnation, Jesus became one of us for us. And through his perfect obedience, he accomplished righteousness for us. And when he went to the cross, he bore his, our sins for us. And when he rose from the dead, he defeated death for us. Your representative who addressed fundamentally what's wrong, fundamentally what ruins you, and death has been defeated because of him. 
Scripture. So the, here's this divine witness, hundreds of years uh, old, before the resurrection event, God is letting us know that this has never been in doubt. This has been the plan all along. And so when Jesus points to the resurrection, to his resurrection, and then it happens, it's not like a mystery. It's not as though like, gee, what, what happened here? It's not a mystery, it's a sign. God did this. The impossible did happen, and God did it. And to get to the veracity of such a claim, you see this marker and this marker and this marker, you know, and on and on and on, and the divine witness working through the human. So let me go back to just a baseline evidentiary issue. The tomb is empty. How? Well, if you were an opponent of Jesus, and he had plenty back then, why wouldn't you just produce the body? How hard would it be to produce the body? Not hard at all. If it hadn't been raised from the dead, you know, the resurrected bodies are hard to produce as dead. You can't find them. But the fierce, highly motivated opponents of Jesus couldn't produce his body. That's all they had to do to defeat Christianity. They couldn't do it. They couldn't produce the body. I wonder why. How should you respond? What does John intend Two things, and then we'll wrap up. He writes this so that we'll believe. It's no, this isn't a surprise at this point. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, it doesn't matter whether I've preached or Brad has preached, you can't miss it in the Gospel of John. The word believe shows up over and over and over. And so it's like, what's the point here? Believe in Jesus. And by the time you get to chapter 20, verse 31, John writes this. Listen, I wrote this down so that you'd believe in Jesus. I'm writing to convince you that Jesus is the one. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And here's why. So that whenever you believe, you'll have life in his name. Jesus came, and that makes all the difference. Jesus came with a purpose. And I want you, John writes, to receive this purpose for yourself. I just want you to know, like I was looking at this passage and preparing, and um, it's one of those weeks um, where I just I prayed for you. Whoever would be here, that you'd believe. Because that's John's purpose. Here's who Jesus is. Believe. So that by believing, you'll have life in his name. So believe the message. But the second thing is share the message. Uh, get out the word. That's John's reason for writing the book. Because whoever receives Jesus, receives eternal life through him. And we all have like these people in our sphere. And probably you have people in your sphere who... Maybe they've heard of Jesus, but they haven't really crystallized what they think about Jesus. Or maybe they just haven't heard, or it's like foreign to them, or something like that. But you have people in your sphere. Who in your sphere needs to hear the message? Needs to, well, like John goes to great trouble to write all of this about Jesus, right? And why? I want you to believe, because by believing you'll have life in his name. You have the right to become children of God, he says. Who in your sphere needs to hear the message? Have somebody in mind? Somebody you love? Maybe bring it up. Let's pray. Oh, an empty tomb, Father, that a Savior who loved us so much that he would identify with us, leave heaven, become one of us, accomplish righteousness for us through his life, go to the cross to bear sins for us, and rise from the dead, uh, to defeat death for us. What more could we ask? And you call us to believe. So may we who believe celebrate. 
And may those who have just considered it this morning, may they come in and believe. And know the joy uh, to, become, to, to be given the right to become your child. So would you be glorified and uh, receive our praises and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.